0: hallelujah here we are once again gathered under god's word this morning we are going to turn our attention to the gospel of john again in chapter 12 Uh, we're going to look at verses 20 through 34 and so if you would open your bibles to the gospel of john uh, we're going to consider those verses so first um let us let us pray and Father God, we come to your scriptures this morning having received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth to our souls this morning. We ask for the enabling grace to help us to walk in what your word says this morning. We ask for that same grace to fill the churches at Old Town and at Wapato Valley this morning. May the gospel be rightly and unashamedly proclaimed throughout our community this morning. We lift those who cannot be here with us this morning for health or safety concerns. We ask that you might minister to them in this season. Uh, Encourage them in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask for us this morning to give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to the church this morning. And I ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So let us uh, begin just by reading the passage, uh, John chapter 12, and uh, we'll begin at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, From the earth will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. So the crowd answered Him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? This is the life-giving word of the Lord. You may have noticed it seems like an abrupt stop at verse 34. It's hanging there. And I want it to hang there for a reason. So we will see that as we uh, dive in here this morning. Jared Wilson is a uh, pastor who uh, serves a large church, and he's also a, uh, a uh, president of a seminary in the Midwest. And he was evaluating his pastoral ministry, and he, he said, I used to think that my pastoral duty was to equip people how to live. After many years, now I see that the bulk of my work is teaching and encouraging people to die. And the call of the cross, of Jesus Christ, is a call to die that you might truly have life. The gospel promises life to dead souls, and those who respond to the life-giving gospel are then called to kill that which remains in them every single day. To die to selfish ambition, to die to self-governed moral independence, to die to all the things that we prefer for ourselves, our preferences over others. See, the matter of the gospel is a matter of life and death. Eternal life, we will see, comes to those who daily and intentionally abandon this one. To get the life that is to come. Those of us who have received that life that is to come abandon this one daily. We have to lay it down. And we lay it down at the cross. Well, let us look uh, closely at at, 20 through 22 and see kind of what's going on here as a background. So, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So, For by way of background, the locus of of the people of God currently in this context is Israel. So the locus, the center of community is Israel. More specifically, the central place of community here is the temple. And only those who were ethnic Jews or those who were foreign converts to Judaism uh, could come to be part of the people of God. Entrance to the inner courts of the temple was forbidden upon pain of death to the Gentiles. There were even warning signs that were posted between the barriers that separated the inner courts from the outer courts of the Gentiles. That this warning sign. Do not enter upon pain of death. If you come in here and you are a Gentile, you will die. It is forbidden. Off limits. Do not enter. You cannot come in here. So, Here we are. This is is the scene, right? These Greeks, they come. And another part of this background we want to see is that this is going to be a signal, right? This is going to be a signal of the time. These Greeks coming to Jesus signals something because his response is, the hour has not yet come. It's a signal, right? So Jesus said at the wedding in Canaan, chapter 2, and at the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7, that his hour had not yet come. There was an appointed time from the Father for Jesus to be glorified and for God to be glorified through Jesus. Um, In this section, we see what signals that the time is at hand is these Greeks that come. If if you recall, the Pharisees said in, in, in chapter 12, verse 19, that we finished last week, that the whole world had gone after Jesus. The whole world has gone after him. That's what they say, right? see that you're doing nothing, that you're making no headway. The whole world has gone after Him. Now we see in verse 20 that it says that some Greeks are seeking Jesus. And what, what, what it does is firm up what 19 says. There are some from the world, those outside of Judaism, who are now seeking Jesus. And we get to this point in our text, for the most part, the Jews have rejected Messiah. And so the news of the Gentile world seeking Jesus signals that the time for His glorification has come. See, recall with me John 1.11 when he says, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. So here's here's the signal that His own people had not received Him, they had rejected Him, and now these Greeks come seeking Jesus. So the world has indeed gone after Him, right? Those outside of, of the world as they... Uh, knew it. By Jesus' response to the news delivered by Andrew and Philip, we see that Jesus understands this to be the divine signal. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So they tell Jesus this. These Greeks are coming to seek you. And he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In this section, Jesus began teaching on the necessary death. That brings glory to God and eternal life to God's chosen people. The glory of eternal life cannot begin to bear its fruit, he says, until the death penalty has been meted out. The glory of eternal life, the fruit of eternal life, cannot begin to flourish until the death penalty has been meted out. And he says here, the hour has come for the wrath of God to be satisfied, for God to be glorified through the Son of Man's death on a cross. You might recall from chapter 11 verse 4 that Jesus comforts the siblings of Lazarus by saying that death is not the end for Lazarus and foretelling in himself that death would not be the end of Jesus of Nazareth. But death is necessary for the glory of God to be manifested and that Jesus would be glorified through death. So Jesus here is speaking to a largely agrarian society. And so verse 24 He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus here is saying the glory of the crop after the seed has died. It is then transformed into the living fruit of its intended purpose. It is until it dies. It doesn't live according to its intended purpose. It has to die first and then it bears fruit. When the dead seed is risen, then it bears a new and a fruitful life, doesn't it? The seed is dead, and now there's this new fruitful life that is born by its death. Paul explains the necessary death for the fruit of eternal life in much the same way. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, I just think it's better if we just read this together. 1 Corinthians 15 will begin in verse 36. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for the stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown perishable, uh, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So the idea here is that in order for the glory of God to be manifested in eternal life of the believer, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners. The hour has come. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. Now is the time when those who were once called not My people will be called My people. But in order for that to happen, death is necessary. It is the road to glory. As I was thinking about this passage this week, I kept thinking about you know, how R.C. Sproul would speak about God being the thrice holy God. God is holy, holy, holy. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He's the righteous creator and judge. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. Humankind as a whole is guilty of cosmic treason against holy God. And there is one wage for that, and that wage is death. The wage for sin is death. And humanity as a whole owes a debt to God. Every person owes a life to God for their sin. All of us owe a life to God for our sin. We owe a life. A life must be given for our sin. The hour has come for the Son of Man to pay a debt, a debt that He did not owe for those whom God has chosen to grant repentance and faith, that they would bear the fruit of eternal life. God made a way to eternal life for sinners like you and like me. Are you looking for life? You will not find it unless you come to the death of Jesus Christ. You will not find life unless you come to the death of Christ. You will not find life unless you come to the cross. You have to come to the cross, but you can only come to the cross through the death of Jesus Christ, made necessary by what? The death of Christ was made necessary by you and by me. We come to the cross knowing that the death of Jesus Christ was necessary, and it's all my fault. It's all my fault because I have committed cosmic treason against holy God, and I am without hope unless I come to the cross of Jesus Christ. These Greeks who come seeking Jesus have been separated from God, and they've been separated from the people of God, and this was according to God's sovereign choice. Jesus teaches that for anyone to become the people of God, the death of the Son of Man is necessary, and the hour has now come. Everyone who is part of the community of God comes in the same way. If you're part of the community of God, you only come in one way. Everybody comes in the same way. There there are religions out there that teach that all paths lead to God. No, there's one path. There's one way. And everyone who comes to God and becomes part of the community of God comes by way of the cross. Comes by the way of the atoning death of Jesus Christ for sin. That's how we come to be the people of God. Everyone must come by the way of Jesus and by the way of the cross. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. The servant is not greater than his master. Jesus will teach this to his disciples when we get to chapter 13 in a couple of weeks. And this passage looks forward to that. If eternal life is found in Jesus Christ, the master's death on a cross, his servants must likewise give up the life they have to gain the glory of the one that is promised in the gospel. Jesus is saying a lot here in this passage that where the, where the Christ goes, where Jesus goes, my servants will be there also. It's a big thing. The Son of Man must be lifted up. I am going to a cross to die for sin and you too must come. You must come laying down your life. If you're going to grab a hold of this eternal life, you are not greater than your Master. You must go where your Master goes. And your Master went to a cross and died. You must die to yourself too. You must not treasure the life that you have. You must lay it down to pick up this one. You must go where He goes. Where Christ is. His servants will certainly follow. I think some of us are not willing to follow Jesus that far. I think think it's been taught in churches so much that you can just come and have a good time on Sunday morning and this is kind of an entertainment center and this is where we come and have a good time and uh, and pat each other on the back and say, well done. But, but the call of the gospel says, come to the cross and die. Come to the cross and die. That's not a very popular message, is it? But, but, but it's, it's, it's a two-sided coin, isn't it? Come to the cross and find life. But you'll know you have that life if you've come to the cross and died. You'll know that life has been given to you if you have come and laid down the life you had. You'll know you have life in you if you come to the cross and have laid down this life to pick up the other one. His servants must likewise give up the life that they have to gain the glory of the one that is promised in the gospel. Remember, in the gospel of Mark, he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. See, in verse 25, Jesus uses a Semitic idiom about love and hate. This articulates something more than just uh, uh, hating as an end in itself. What, What this idiom proclaims is that if one doesn't fundamentally prefer one life over the other. It is a fundamental preference of eternal life over the life I have. That is, that is hating this life. That is preferring the other one. Right? And it, and it makes sense when you think about Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that passage is all about sovereign choice. It's about God's sovereign choice. I preferred this one and this one I saved. Right? It's not hate in an absolute sense. It's, I made a preference. I made a choice. And that's what Jesus is, is intimating here, right? If, if, you, if you love this life, right, you cannot embrace the new one. You must prefer this new life over the one you have. And what does that mean then? That means like, you have to die to self-preference, to the way you like things. I like things the way I like them because I like them. No, Jesus says, lay that down. Die to that and embrace this life, right? If one does not fundamentally prefer the promised life of eternity over against the life in this world, they will in the end not receive it. If you don't fundamentally choose and and want eternal life, if you don't fundamentally embrace eternal life while laying down this one in the end, you may not receive it. You may not have ever received it. Jesus is very clear here that where his servant goes, there he will go also. His servant will be in those same places laying down his rights and his fundamental rights for the glory of the gospel. Where Jesus is, there his servant will be also. The servant of Jesus Christ brings his or her life in the world to the same place that Jesus brings his life in the world to, and that is to the cross. At the cross, Jesus, uh, he surrendered his life there. That is where we come and surrender ours. Jesus comes and surrenders his life at the cross, and the believer is found there too, laying down their life, their rights, in humble submission to the Master. The life that honors the Father is the life that is laid down at the cross of Jesus Christ, he says. When Jesus here in this passage says, Follow me and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That is, if if one finds themselves at the cross laying down their life, embracing eternal life, that is a life that honors God. A life that honors God lays down this one do you want to please God? Do you want to please God? I kept thinking about this this week. I can please God. I can really please God through Jesus. But I've got to lay it down. I've got to lay down this life. Sacrifice pleases God. A life that we live laying down ours. And we lay it down because Jesus did it. Jesus showed us by example laying down his life in humble submission to the Father, although he was, had every right to claim his deity, right? He laid his life down. Like Jesus, the road to glory is paved with the suffering and the loss of all things in this one. The road to glory, friends, is paved with suffering and laying down and the loss of all things in this one. I know that when you and I get to heaven, we're not going to say, I wish I had hung on to this life a little bit stronger. I wish I would have done so much more in this life and embraced all that the earth had for me. I wish I would have done that. No. I think we will stand before holy God and say, man, why didn't I lay it down earlier? Why didn't I not rid myself of this as I was going? Why did I hang on to this life? It's nothing compared to the glory of God. It's nothing compared to this eternal life. 1 Peter uh, 2, 21-25 reads this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to to the One who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The evidence of eternal life in the life of the believer is intentional. It is intentionally, increasingly, dying to one's preferences every day. For the promised eternal life in Jesus Christ is greater It has become greater to us than any treasure I might get in this life. And so I willingly lay it down like Jesus did by example. The Christian says that to gain the life promised in Christ Jesus, I prefer to die a thousand deaths. I prefer to die a thousand deaths in this one because I find only satisfying life to be that which was granted to me by Jesus at the cross. The one who is given in inter- eternal life. They echo the words of Paul in Philippians 3 8 through 10. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The life I live in Christ, I find in the death of Christ. And the death to this life, I have been made willing by God to lay it down at the foot of the cross. That's what the believer says that by faith, and God has made me willing to lay down my rights, lay down my preferences. I lay them down at the cross for the excellency of knowing eternal life in Jesus. The death He died, He died for me. The death I die, I die in gratitude for what he's done for me. And I am embracing this eternal life. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour, Jesus says. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. The overriding principle in Jesus' life, remember as we looked back at chapter 11, was the glory of God the Father. What the Father did, Jesus did. What Jesus was doing, the Father was working in him. The will and the work of the Father was to glorify the Son. The work of the Son was to do the will of the Father to His praise and to His glory. And I'm kind of beating a dead horse here to make sure we get this point. That they are unified. That the Father and the Son were unified in their work and in the will. Right. And the work of the Son was to do the will of the Father to His praise and glory. The work of Jesus Christ in saving sinners is that the glory of the Father from heaven. It glorifies Him in His death. God's will is displayed in Jesus' willing, atoning death on a cross. Jesus is glorified in His death. God the Father from heaven says in the hearing of the crowd that He has glorified His name and would display it soon through the cross and would display it yet again, right? I will glorify you on the cross. I will glorify my name. I have glorified it. I will glorify it in your death. And I will glorify it once again in three days when I raise you from the dead. Right? I will glorify it, I will glorify it again, I will glorify it again and again and again. We'll be glorified in Christ Jesus when we seek not our own glory, just as Jesus did not seek His. Jesus receives glory from God because He did not seek it. He did not seek it for His own. Think about this, He laid His life down willingly, not seeking glory, seeking the Father's glory. He lays it down, He didn't seek glory for Himself, and for that very reason, God glorified Him through it. And that same thing is true for us, right? That the life that glorifies God, the the life that will lead us to glory is the life that is laid down for His sake, for one who doesn't seek their own glories, for one who doesn't seek their own way, doesn't seek their own rights, doesn't seek their own life. But when we go to the place of glory, the cross of Jesus Christ, and we lay it down, we lay it down to the praise of God the Father. And the Father declares unity with the Son in the voice from heaven, likened to the passage when the Spirit descended upon Jesus. And He said, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, the life that pleases the Father is the life that goes where Jesus goes. The life for us that pleases the Father is the life that goes where Jesus goes, even unto death. Even unto death of self, of our preferences, of our rights. That's the life that pleases God, just as Jesus pleased Him by example. How far will you go to please God? I think there's, a, there's an opposite question of that. Will you go as far as Jesus went to save you? Will you go as far as laying yourself down? Will you go as far as Jesus went to save you? And then ask yourself, how far did Jesus go? That is the amazing truth of the gospel for anybody who is, has been saved. As, you know, as I reflect on my salvation... It was, I cannot believe that God would condescend to lay his life down for me. Why? Why would he choose to willingly sacrifice himself for a guy like me? I cannot fathom it. It's the mystery of the gospel, and it's great news that God would die for me. Verse 30. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world, and will the ruler of this world be cast out? See, the voice from heaven affirms that the death that Jesus was about to die was in unity with the Father. It pleased the Father, and that this death was judgment against sinners. We have to be clear that the death on the cross is judgment. It's mercy and kindness and grace as well. It's all of those things. It's life it's death, it's all of those things at one moment. For that to be true, that can only be an act of God, isn't it? Where, the, where everything just comes together in one spot. Love, wrath, grace, mercy, judgment, all in one spot, on one day, in one person, at one time. Everything comes to meet at the cross of Jesus Christ. And I thought a long and hard about this this week about how often do I go back to the cross and just lay there and say I lay it all down for you. I lay it all here. I lay my life right here. I lay it here. Take it up again, Lord. I lay it here. I lay it all down here. So often I forget about the cross. I kind of look at it as it's in the rear view mirror. You know, we think sometimes about the gospel and think about Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And we think about it as if it's in the rear view mirror. He saved me and I'll take it from here. I'll just go and live my own way. I'll take it from here. And so we think of Christ as we're driving down the road and we look in the rear view mirror and go, oh yeah, I was saved. I was saved at the cross. Jesus died for my sin. But I think when we look at this passage, we should see the cross in front of us. Ever in front of us. Because it bids us to come and die. It bids us to come and die daily. Keep the cross of Jesus Christ right in front of us. That's where love is poured out. It's where the judgment of God is. The right judgment of God. The justice of God and the mercy of God all at once in one place. It is the place where I'm going to gain life if I remember to come and lay this one down. It's where I remember that I have gained eternal life. It's evidence that I am indeed saved, right? The evidence that I am indeed saved and been given eternal life is that I go to the cross and lay this one down and I keep it ever in front of me. Verse thirty two and I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself he said this to show what kind of death he was going to ha- to die see jesus here alludes to the new covenant people of god doesn't he so before as we saw these greeks they were the, there was the locus of community was israel the center of worship was specifically at the temple and these these greeks were not allowed upon penalty of death to enter in to the center of the community, to the inner place, to the inner courts that were not allowed. And Jesus here says this death, that the Son of Man is going to die on the cross, this place that I'm going, this hour that is now here, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to Myself. He says this is where the covenant people of God will meet. They will meet at the cross. The covenant people of God will come to the cross now. And, and it will include Greeks, Jews, Scythians, slaves. It will include all. But all must come to the cross. This is the new covenant. And he says here that when the Son of Man is lifted up, anyone, anyone at all, ever, who is ever drawn to the Father will come through the death of Jesus on a cross. The locus of community will remove the wall of separation that separated Jews and Greeks. Entrance to the inner courts, the Holy of Holies, will be granted through the death of Jesus Christ. It is the hour that God has purposed for Jesus. God will, by sovereign choice, draw people to eternal life through the death of His Son. The cross will separate the worldly from the godly. The cross will separate the world from the godly. And I would think about that, and I thought about that this week. Is like, how do I separate myself from worldly wants, desires? I go to the cross. I have to go to the cross to separate myself from the world. It's what separates you and me from the people of the world to be the people of God. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is His atoning death for us. It is that which we have received by grace and through faith. The cross will separate the worldly from the godly, the cross will separate the foolish from the wise, the cross will separate the dead from the living. Listening to what Paul uh, writes about the locus of community in Ephesians chapter two, verses twelve through sixteen, he says, "Remember that you were some at, at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off." "...have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. He who has made us both one has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility." That is the sign, right? That says, not allowed. He has broken down this dividing wall in His flesh, this dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now in verse 34, it leaves them, they leave with this question or response to all that Jesus has said. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And who is this Son of Man? See, the crowd, they hear the message of the cross, the necessity of death to gain eternal life. The crowd heard it unwillingly earlier, unwittingly earlier from uh, the high priest. He unwittingly prophesied that it was necessary that one man should die for the people. They have heard the voice from heaven declare, Jesus has unity with the Father, They evaluate their learning. They evaluate their understanding of the law. And they evaluate their understanding of Christ. And they determine that this message is foolishness. They've determined that the message that the Son of Man must be lifted up is foolishness. Who is this Son of Man? How can you say He must be lifted up? We know. We are the knowers of the law. We are the knowers of the law of Christ. How can you say that this Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? According to Daniel 7, the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and that all peoples and all nations and all languages should serve Him. It is stated in in Daniel 7 that His dominion is everlasting. It will never end. It is a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And they're asking Him, how can you say that through death this kingdom comes? This is foolishness to the Jewish mind. It is precisely in death that God establishes His kingdom in Christ. Death is not the end, as Jesus foretold in chapter 11, verse 4. Death is not the end. God will raise the Son of Man upon a cross when He dies for sinners three days later. God will glorify Himself again through His Son by raising Him from the dead. Death cannot hold the Son of Man. Death cannot thwart the everlasting kingdom of Christ. It is the necessity of death that will bring God's people, reconcile them to Himself once and for all. Is this message foolishness? 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, I think when we proclaim this message, We can tell who has received it. But they say, this is the power of God. This is the wisdom from God. This is the glory of God is found at the cross. When we tell that to the world, they say, this is foolishness. This is foolishness. And we know then that you are perishing. If the message of the cross is foolishness to you, you are perishing. But if the message of the cross is wisdom, and the power, and the glory of God, ah, it is life. It is life for us. Will you come to the cross and find the wisdom, power, and glory of God to grant you eternal life through repentance and faith, that becomes our question. Is Is there evidence that you prefer eternal life to the one that you have on earth? Is there evidence in your own life that you prefer eternal life to the one that you have? Heather and I were talking about in, in marriage forsaking all others is one of the vows that a husband makes to his wife and his wife and a wife makes to her husband. Forsaking all others. And what that means is I prefer her over anything else. I prefer her. Her I love. Everything else I hate in the Jewish idiom. I prefer her over anyone else. That's who I prefer. And do we do that? Do we say in our own lives, I prefer eternal life over this one. I'm making a preference. I prefer that over my rights, over my preferences. I've forsaken all others. Will you daily come to the cross and lay down your rights, your preferences, and loves even, to embrace the promised life in Jesus Christ? And here's the big one that I have, I'm going to ask myself every day this week and probably for weeks to come. <laughs> the big question, will you follow Jesus where He willingly went? Counting the cost, understanding that this life pales in comparison to the excellency of knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection. Will I be a living sacrifice? The problem with the living sacrifice is what? The living sacrifice goes and lays himself down on the altar only to pick it up again. Right? I lay it all down for you, Lord. We even sing those songs, right? I lay it all down until I pick it up again. And then I have to lay it down again. I lay it all down. I think will we daily remember this, that I need to go to the cross and lay it down. Don't kick yourself when you pick it back up because you're going to. That's our sinful nature, selfish, fleshy nature. Don't kick yourself when you pick it up again. Just go back. Go back to the cross and lay it down again. I lay it down for you, Lord. I lay it down. And you'll find love and grace and mercy and you'll find that that which you laid down, the Lord already laid His life down for you. And He says, this is a life that is pleasing to the Father. A life of sacrifice. A life that prefers eternal life. To this one a life that says there's nothing more excellent in this life than knowing jesus christ and the power of his resurrection nothing greater i i even think now of john piper always says this in several books he says the same thing is you know that god is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in jesus When we are most satisfied in all that God is for us in Christ, right, over against everything else, my preference is all that God is for me in Christ Jesus should be my preference. Let us take a moment of silence and allow God's Word to uh, penetrate our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the atoning death of Jesus. We ask for your power and your grace and your mercy to enable us to daily go to the cross and find our life, to find our real life in you. That you have bid us to come and die, that we might live. I pray, Lord, for your grace and your ability to do so. I know that in my own heart and in my own life, I try to embrace uh, much of me. And your word here says, come to the cross and prefer the life you have in me rather than this one. Lord, help us to lay it all down again and again, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.